Welcome to the Big Swings Podcast with Eric Schaefer, Episode 1, Part 2. Let's keep this thing moving. Welcome to the Big Swings Podcast, your source for breakthrough trends shaping business and technology innovation. And now your host, a man who truly has the greatest face for radio, Eric Schaefer. Hey everyone, it's Eric here. Thanks for coming back for the continuation of our discussion with Drew and Sam Weatherford, episode one, part two of this two-part series, picking right back up and jumping right into it with Sam Weatherford. So Sam, let's swing a little bit here, right? And out of the three of you, Drew, Will, yourself here at Weatherford Partners, you've been the one to really take on what I would consider some some really professional risk, right? I mean, as we were talking earlier, Drew's never left the state of Florida, right? Went from Atlanta Lakes to Florida State and back here to Tampa. You had the opportunity to extend your playing career at Fordham. So you decided, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to New York, start playing at Fordham, spend your time there, had a had a great time up there. And then all of a sudden you decided, hey, I'm gonna move to Asia, right? Talk about a, a risk. I mean, your family's grounded and rooted here in Florida. You decide, hey, I'm going to up and move to Asia, right? Whether it's calculated or not, those are huge risks. And I think there's a lot, out, a lot of folks out there that are going to be listening to this going, you know, not only am I getting started, not only do I have the challenges of picking maybe the right city, right? But am I in the right market? Right. And you touched on this earlier, not only being in the right city, but in the right city for the market that that you're involved in. So you decided to move to Asia. Tell us a little bit why you decided to move to Asia and and some of the the stuff that you took on over there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, first of all, when I graduated school, um, you know, I I really wasn't 100 percent sure what I wanted to do. I studied business and you know you just kind of go around and you you kind of talk you try to talk the lingo to these older folks who are in the professional world and try to glean some wisdom and, and some information and insight from them and then you know because you're basically just studying books all day for four years and trying to make sense of the world and so I knew I liked business and it seemed like everything I was reading and everything everybody was telling me was that business is now global there is no such thing as local business which is why you can start a a business in Tampa that can be a huge global business, right? Because of, of connectivity and for transport and just the way the world works. And so I said, well, that's kind of challenging because, you know, coming from a humble family of nine, I've never left the country before. So <laughs> how can I even, how can I even like possibly pursue global business when I don't really understand what's outside the United States? And so I think I had just enough um, experience and, and confidence from moving from Pasco County, you know, from Land Lakes High School to the Bronx. So, and, and that was a huge transition. You know, it's a totally different culture, totally different environment. You know, a good portion of the people in the Bronx are speaking Spanish, right? So right. it was a very, very significant culture shock. And so I think that culture shock gave me a little bit of confidence to say, hey, maybe I could do something uh, internationally, globally. And so you know, honestly, it was a question that oftentimes entrepreneurs ask, which is like, 
hey, what's happening in the world like that's really big, that's really exciting, that's a big wave, right? And then like, how do I participate in it? And and sometimes it requires you to take a big swing. And so I had never left the country before, and so I said, man, there's 1.3 billion people in China. China's the number three largest economy in the world. It's on its on track to be the number two. And everything, all these huge, the bigger the business I talked to, the more that they were being influenced by what's happening in, in, in Asia, particularly China. So I said, what's really the downside risk for me to move to China, study Chinese for a couple of years, and then just come back to New York, and then I'll start my business career then, but only then I'll actually have some real experience and real credibility to pursue a truly global career. Mm-hmm. So while you were over in Asia, you were able to co-found a company over there, um, uh, equity firm as well, yep, correct? Private equity, yeah. Private equity. And you had the opportunity to kind of see not even what, they're not even called emerging markets, they're called frontier markets, right? And you had the opportunity to start uh, a fund over there, um, and it's described as the Ethiopia Growth and Transformation Fund. Tell us a little bit about your involvement in building that fund, but from the frontier markets, the value that those, those you know, uh, ge- geographies are providing uh, to, you know, really our economy and the growth of, of other, you know, markets. Yeah, you should have them answer it in, in Mandarin Chinese, so you should do it. Well, so if, you wanna, meantime, if you want to do meantime, part of it, yeah. In the meantime, you learn that Yeah, you do part Chinese. of it in Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to put subtitles in the podcast. So. Oh, that's <laughs> you're, you're really challenging, you know, my out of the box here. So, but um, Yeah, well, well, I think, uh, so... So I was there studying Chinese and, and met, met a guy who basically had a big vision to build an investment business and uh, wanted to initially invest his own capital in companies in China. And so um, really partnered up with him and started building out an investment thesis. But to, to, before you kind of part ways with your money and you invest in something, you want to know it really well. And you want to uh, have a relationship ultimately with the people that you're investing in because you never invest in companies. You're always investing in people. And that was a principle yeah, that point. we use uh, throughout our, our companies, no matter how big or small the investment is, like who are the people we're investing in? Because they're going to be driving the dollars. They're going to be driving the business. And so we, you know, it was critical to understand Chinese culture. It was critical to understand, you know, to be able to speak the language and to build relationships cross-culturally um, and to build trust in order to get comfortable and to understand how a business functions within its specific environment. And, and actually to deploy capital. And then when it comes to frontier markets, what we, what we started realizing is that we, we were building a, a very uh, kind of agile uh, and sophisticated uh, team that was capable of building these relationships and getting these unique insights in these kind of, uh, in these challenging markets. And we realized that the perceived risk for some of these frontier markets was higher than the actual risk. So we thought there was a true arbitrage play um, because as we were in Ethiopia, we were in Mongolia, we were in Georgia, we were in some of these countries, we realized that actually if you build relationships with uh, people who understand the industry well and have a track record of success and actually have built relationships with a lot of the key industry players, then there's an opportunity to come and partner with them and then have them uh, provide uh, guidance in regards to where you're going to place capital. And so it's really about 
it's very entrepreneurial because you're going to a new market having to understand a whole different country and how that country works in light of the rest of the world and how you know who its trading partners are and whatnot and then really to you have to in order you know to to do an investment you have to understand a specific company and a specific industry in light of the entire country in which it operates and oftentimes in, t in light of the whole region so it's like one company in ethiopia in east africa so you got to understand what's happening in the macro trends in africa between china africa trade u.s you know u.s aid flows and western aid flows into africa and so it, it was uh, for me, as you can tell, I'm just talking through. It's like it was really complex, really exciting, right, and right. and very uh, relationally intensive. And do you think those complexities drive why most startups are are coming out of the U.S.? I mean, you you talk about cross border relationships and things of that nature. Do you feel those complexities? are really driving why entrepreneurs and startups are really flourishing and coming more out of the U.S. than we are seeing out of those other global markets? You know, I think that's a great question, Eric. Great I, think, question. Um, I think the primary reason why you see a, such a substantially larger number of startups coming from the United States um, is because, uh, and from the Western world, is basically just because of affluence. Uh, it's hard to take a risk and to do a startup when if it doesn't work, you might not be able to feed your family for a year. And so we live in an environment, in a culture, in a country where we can work really hard in our job, maybe save up enough money for a year or two or three years and actually be in a position to take a big swing. And if it doesn't work out, it's, it's obviously not ideal, but we can, we can recover from it. So I think there's some of that has to do with it, but I would say that there are startup, there, there is kind of growing startup activity in all these different countries, but you know, startups, as we talked about how important it is in picking a city, you can't just take any technology, any kind of startup firm, no matter how successful, and just cut and paste it into another environment mm -hmm. because it's, it's a totally different environment with different, you know, kind of uh, influences and different structures and, and people are motivated for different reasons. And so there's really no such thing as a global strategy. You truly have to have you know, an individual country strategy, and, and Drew and I talk about this, there's a lot of dynamic markets within Florida alone. You know, and oftentimes some of our clients hire us to help them figure out how do you develop a very unique and targeted strategy, you know, for the, for the disparate markets within Florida. You can't take a Miami strategy and go to Tallahassee. You can't take a, you know, Jacksonville strategy and go to Naples. Like, there, there's, there's cultural aspects about that. So you're always fine-tuning and tweaking. So I think these, some of these countries that we are talking about in the frontier markets, they're so different than the United States that it's hard to take their technology and apply it to ours. And that, and, but you will see a limited amount, but definitely some of our technology that's applicable there. So, for example, Uber is working great. Airbnb is working great yeah, in one. these environments, yeah. but not all of them. In fact, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, they're the exception, not the norm. Yeah, okay. it's, and I would even, just to add to that, you know, because of the infrastructure that we already have laid in this country, creates opportunities for certain technologies and it cuts both ways. In other undeveloped places in the world, um, they don't have the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure to even make some of the, the, the apps and things of that work because there's no connectivity. Yeah, for example, right. I was in Cuba in March through March, in between March and April and Uber can't work, won't work there because there's no nobody has an, a mobile nobody has the internet on their mobile phone. 
Hmm. So like it just it just can't work. There's not yeah. the infrastructure. But like I would have never thought that a place so close to the United States, everybody wouldn't be armed with with mobile have phones those and have all the apps. Yeah. yeah. But then it goes. Yeah. It cuts the other way. Where take the banking system, very established here in America, not very established in, in certain parts of Africa and India. And so fintech over there is growing at Correct. a rate, you know, way beyond America because we have all these legacy. System. So to your point, it's about finding the right technology, right, to meet the need of the of of different parts of the world. Um, well, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, and you, when you think of this this concept of leapfrogging, which was very kind of a big buzzword in the globalization movements in like you know the early two thousands, late two thousands, people talked about um, oh you know you don't have to just adopt the old form of technology like Africa and and, and Ethiopia. You know, they have tremendous, they never had cable, uh, you know, television. They never had, like, cable wires running through the whole country to where you could have hardline phones. Like, I've never seen a hardline phone in the whole country of Ethiopia. Wow. It's all, it's all mobile phones. So yeah. it's like, so actually, they, if they're, now they're kind of getting on board, and all this technological innovation that's happening in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, the stuff that is transferable over there, immediately gets transferred and actually becomes their baseline. That they're building off of, so it's 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 quite quite different yeah, and dynamic. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So you know, you you touched on it a little bit. You know, so there's the challenges ac- across borders, right? Um, and you know, taking that approach when starting a, a new organization, a new business, uh, you know, country by country. How you know you mentioned Cuba, right? Really close to us, but they don't have the internet on their phones, right? Um, you know, how is technology, and, and, and technology kind of in a broad sense, right? How do you see technology bridging the gap globally yeah. to where some of these other organizations or even these new startups, right? These niche players, right? Whether they're in fintech or it's an Uber or an Airbnb, how do they close the gap? Right. And, and what role do you see technology playing? in that? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's a great question. Tech, I mean, technology, the way I understand it, is simply a tool that makes us more productive. Right. Or it gives us the potential to be more productive. It's it's an advancement in productivity. And so no one knew it. Um, you know, no one knew how transformative mobile phones were going to be mm-hmm. anywhere and they have, have been even more so transformative in some of these more frontier markets. Because it, prior to that, like in the US, it, prior to the mobile phone, we had the hardline phones. We had the interstate system, mm-hmm. right? We had the, the post office. Right. So I'm telling you, in, in some of East African countries, there is no post office. So if you live out in the middle of nowhere, the only way, you don't get mail. There is no mail system. There was no super highways. There was no, you know, uh, interstate system, and there was no hardline phones. And so now, all of a sudden, going from zero to one, right? No connectivity, <laughs> to now you're a farmer with, you know, one hectare or a couple, two point two acres of land, and now you're getting the weather reports on your phone. You're trying to buy grain, and, and you know, for ten dollars of seeds this this month, and you can compare prices, and everybody in your neighborhood has one, and you're trying to figure out, you know, uh, you want to check uh, the quality of teacher your your daughter's going to their school. Yeah. I mean, 
I, and I, I mean, I've, I can say this in Africa too, but in China, the, the generation in China that I met that are, let's say they're 70 or 80 now, they have experienced more technological change than any human generation prior. Because wow. in, when they were in the 30s in China, the average age was like, the average age was 27 or 28 years old. The healthcare was so bad, there was no systems, there was no uh, quality agriculture, no technology. And now, that you know, you have grandmothers on Facebook, right? You have in these China, and they've gone from like absolutely nothing to being at the tip of the spear and, and having you know all types of, uh, of of businesses sprouting out right. throughout China. And so, just to see that country grow, double-digit GDP growth for thirty years—something wow. the world never thought was even possible—and actually, you know, being that this is all about entrepreneurship. The way that the Chinese government brought 200 plus million people out of poverty in 30 years was through free market, through implementing, basically through entrepreneurs rising up and saying, I'm going to start a business, I'm going to be a part of a private sector business. And those, the jobs created actually pulled more people out of poverty from a single movement than any time in human history. And technology profound. is, is the, the, center, is of the center of all of that. Yeah. That's right. No, that is profound. That is profound. So coming back to the States now, you've had this, this global view. Um, you know, you've been doing some investing. You partnered with somebody over in Asia. You're coming back to the States to join your brothers here. And literally the moment you guys put the name on the door out here of this office building, you guys are part of an investment in a company called Pay It. And this company now is really starting to make a lot of traction. We, we talked earlier, I think they've won a couple more states. You know, they're headquartered, I believe, out of, out of Kansas, uh, Kansas, Kansas City. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about why Pay It, yeah. right? I mean, I think it is transformative what they're doing and, and tech and mobile is really at the heart of it. And from a public sector you know there's a there's there's different challenges between the private and public sectors right and i think your investment your involvement in pay it speaks loudly for what technology mobility is doing right in the public sector but help us understand why why pay it right what what was it around the vision you know and this goes back to those folks looking to get started mm-hmm. right if they're going to bring a message to you mm-hmm. What is it about that message that stood out, especially around like pay it? Yeah. For you guys to jump in feet first, right out of the gates. I mean, I think the, the paint was still drying on the door out there and, and you guys are investing in pay it. Talk to me a little bit about that investment um, and, and really what about that organization, their message resonated with yeah. you guys to dive in? Yeah, well, well, first of all, the two entrepreneurs who are, are the founders of pay it, uh, John Thompson and Mike Plunkett, um, you know, w- when we met with them uh, initially, um, even on our first phone calls, you could just tell that, that they really um, had done their due diligence and understood what uh, was happening in the industry and what was really possible uh, with technology, uh, with the product that they were developing. And uh, so we're, we're very much, um, you know, we, we, we try to, we joke around here and summarize by saying we only like to bet on A players. Like we're trying to find who are really you know the leading the thought leaders uh, in their specific industries within these these uh, these sectors 
that we can participate, that we can partner with and, and, and back and, and be a part of. And so definitely finding guys who have really done their due diligence, understand the industry and had skin in the game, right? They had spent, uh, I think 12 months or more in developing this business model and refining mm-hmm. it. They had already kind of had a, a kind of a, a basic uh, funding round, uh, kind of a friend, friends and families round, but they had made some significant progress when it comes to the, the, the strategy and the product and they had a vision for it. And so it was very clear of, of how they were planning on getting from A to B. And then for us, it was, it was very clear. Uh, I would not have been able to transact this deal on my own or really have, have been able to recognize the opportunity without my brothers, uh, particularly Drew and Will, who uh, having, you know, understanding how state government works and how the current system in Florida works for tag renewal and driver's license renewal, like having them having gone through that headache and then understanding the, the, the structures, the bureaucracy, um, you know, that's, that's currently in place. And so not, I, I thought, I knew it was a great idea, but then I looked to Will and Drew and said, Hey, is this really possible? You know, is this yeah. really going to be a product that the States are going to, to be interested in? And, and the resounding answer was yes, because it's a free product to the States. It doesn't cost the states any money, and it charges a small convenience fee, which is currently standard, basically, even when you do your on, any type of online transaction. But that convenience fee was was so is so worth uh, the value, right? As opposed to having to go to the DMV and renew your driver's oh, license. Yeah, for sure. And so yeah, yeah this like, would you pay? Yeah, we, would you pay two or three bucks? And not have to go to the DMV. Oh, we talked about everyone unequivocally would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we talked about instant gratification, right? I mean, Amazon's doing it with Flex. Yes. You got Publix doing it with Instacart, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sitting at the house today and my sister in law's getting food delivered to the house. Why? Because she's got a six year old sitting there next to her and she doesn't, you know, have the time to run and grab it. So yeah, yeah. that that convenience fee is is definitely a small yeah. in comparison. And I'd say that we also we're not we're not like the most savvy technology guys, right? Uh, we're not engineers or software engineers, and so we didn't really feel like we were taking a technology risk with this company. We really looked into it, and we hired really sharp people to make sure that the technology was there. Mm-hmm. But in my simple mind, I knew the technology worked because I was seeing it operate in the private sector all over the place. In almost every other app I was using, it was just so much more of, a, of an easy and, and more, more, more banking, user experience. More banking, the year before we did the deal, there was more banking transactions done via phone than there was. In any other way? In, in, yeah, you know, at in retail locations or on your laptop even. Right. More bank, yeah. so it's like, clearly the technology was there. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that was interesting you know, and it kind of goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, just knowing uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are. We have a strength in being able to help businesses grow um, in the private sector, but also in the public sector. Um, and we saw where they were headed and we knew that we could be a value addition to that. Um, and what I love about GovTech in general is that all of the technology is out there and the technology that's out there is light years ahead of what governments are using today. Mm-hmm. And so I really think over the next you know, 10 years, technology has integrated, right? And we were talking about this the other day, you know, and he was talking about technology increasing productivity. Um, it is it has spanned so quickly, it's almost entirely saturated 
everyone has a cell phone. Everyone has an email. Everyone has oh, social yeah. media, right? Like, yeah. All of that is, it, but guess who doesn't have a lot of the technological advances? Government. Government. Because they're really slow adopters, they're laggards, but also because of that, a lot of competitors have stayed away. They said, we don't want to deal with, with government because it's long sales cycles, it's bid-driven, it's litigious at times, and so a lot of people just haven't dealt with it, and we... Um, you guys realize long term <laughs> because long term, if you have a long term perspective, yeah. you know that consumers are going to demand that they don't have to go into the DMV. Your daughter and son, and my daughter and his two boys will never walk into a DMV ever. Yeah. So it's like just reading macro trends, it's like whether they want to do it or not, they're so accustomed to getting it, you know, to, to operating this way. To say go to a DMV or you have to go here to get this permit, they're not. Or go to a courthouse to make yeah. a payment, not stand, happening. Stand in line and <laughs> not yeah. happening. They just yeah. they'll stop paying before before they right before they do that. And that brings other challenges. That's exactly. <laughs> well, I think the bigger point is that there's there's that was the most efficient way to do it given the industry's infrastructure at the time. So now you're always saying, hey, how can we do things and make things. The, the, the most kind of seamless user experience. Right. And so the DMV as we know it won't exist, can't exist, shouldn't exist in 20 years because that's, it's, just not, it's not efficient, right? There's other ways. So why, why do we want a DMV? We wanted to be able to validate who the person was. We wanted to, right. so there's now other ways of validating who you are. We wanted to receive payment. Well, there's now means of doing payment that's online. Right. Right. So all the things that the DMV service provided, just to use that for an example, Technology is uh, is basically creating a new way, a new medium, a new channel, and means of us basically doing the same transaction, but a much a significantly more efficiently, which is going to save taxpayers money, which is going to free up time from individuals not waiting in line, which is going to lead to greater economic, you know, productivity and, and, and growth and development. Yeah, seems to be a consistent theme. Sam's all about saving tax dollars. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm telling you. I'm, I'm liking where this conversation if I, goes. If I run for office in Georgia, no, I got one <laughs> hey, voter. You got my vote, man. You got my vote for what? sure. <laughs> oh, goodness. But hey, you know, turning the corner a little bit, you've had the opportunity to journey throughout the world, work for a couple different organizations. One of the, the things under Tremendous scrutiny today. Um, you know, we see it in the press a lot now with with what's happening at like Uber and things of that nature. Is around company culture. What type of culture is, is are you trying to cultivate here at Weatherford Partners? And what type of advice can you provide to the listeners that are that are getting started about creating that culture? Whether it's you know just you know. Being genuine, we talked about that earlier, right? Just being genuine. Um, you know, you guys have a family organization, right? There's a lot of dynamics that come with working with your brothers who, you know, as small kids, you guys probably pounded on each other. Now you're having to work alongside each other, right? Developing company culture. How do you go about developing that culture um, that portrays who your company is and, and the value you're going to provide to those you're doing business with? Yeah, I'd say we. Um, well, I don't think we've have it. I don't think we have it figured out. Um, but I think you know some of the guiding principles we have is uh, number one, we we ha- we we know we have to lead by example. That's right. Um, and so 
the kind of culture that we want to create is really going to be based on you know the the the, the lifestyle and the professional manners that that we conduct ourselves um, with your in the organization and what we're all about um, you know we're not motivated by the next deal we're not motivated by a specific dollar amount you know we're, we're really motivated more uh, than anything based on impact you know how can we have the most positive impact in the community in which we're involved and that that community I, I use that word loosely because yes it means Tampa Bay but it also means in the GovTech sector right? right it also means in all the different industries that we invest in and so for us um, you know, when it comes to impact, I mean, we, we are always looking for, uh, you know, businesses about solving problems. So how can we solve social problems in a sustainable, responsible way that Drew used the term earlier that promotes human flourishing? You know, we want to be investing in companies that build stronger families. We want to be investing in companies that create a greater sense of culture and community. Uh, we want to be investing in products um, that, that uh, yeah, that promote, you know, healthy society, right? And so... Um, to do that, right? To have, if that's your vision, that's your aim. Then we have to make sure that you know we're conducting our business internally in the way that we kind of treat each other as partners, and the way that we uh, collaborate with our staff. Uh, you know, in, in a with a heart of service. Um, you know, with uh, with with humility, um, with honesty, and in uh, in grace. Because it doesn't matter who you work with or what industry you're working like. People always make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. People always do things yep. they regret. And so instead of being, you know, shocked by when those things happen, it's like having a heart of grace and, and recognizing that we've all been given second chances. And so uh, making sure that, that you're not stifling innovation because there's a culture of fear, right? So a culture of fear will force people just to stay in line. So yep. in order to kind of, for, for there to be a culture of abundance, right? then you need to encourage, encourage. people to take big risks, take risk. to pay, take big swings, and recognize you're going to miss some, but that's all right. You know, net-net, you know, together as a team, if we're committed to each other, you know, we're going to hit some out of the park a few times. That's awesome. No, outstanding. Well, I appreciate that feedback. So to kind of finish up the conversation, I got – I have a few kind of free-form questions. Um, and, and, you know, at the, the onset, um, we had talked about um, – the state of Florida being the first state to pass legislature for autonomous vehicles, right? I mean, that was a big push. The state of Georgia's just signed it. Um, there's a lot that can be done within IoT, autonomous driving, really the, the tech. Drew, I'll start with you. What do you foresee, right? And, and let's let's think big picture. I mean, it, it, shoot 10, 15, 20 years out if you want. But what do you see as maybe the next big swing, right? The in, in regards to tech, right? Things like autonomous driving, things of that nature. What, what do you foresee for the state of Florida, for the U.S., maybe globally? You know, you can hone in on any one of those. But what is that next big thing? I mean, are, are there areas in your conversations in your day-to-day where you see gaps that you think somebody's going to fill that and that's going to be a game changer? Man, that's a, um, it's a tough question. Um, I think, you know, first, just to touch on the state of Florida real briefly, I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we were the first state, and um, I think that it, sh it's a, shows a posture 
of, of wanting to be a leader, right? And, right. And I think that's a really good signal that we're sending to the rest of the country that we're not just a state that is based on tourism and agriculture and, right. um, and snowbirds. The big mouse. Um, yep. Yeah, and the big mouse. Yep. Yeah, I can't forget about the big mouse. Um, but we're kind of putting, you know, our, you know, we're letting our actions speak for us a little bit. So that's exciting um, for the state. Um, interesting. I mean, it'll be, from a device standpoint, I'll be honest, I don't see a tremendous amount changing with the devices that we use. Right. Um, I really see a lot of the technology that we have today that's being used in certain industries um, being integrated into um, new industries that aren't leveraging it. And I think one that's probably the most ripe for um, disruption and would do humanity the greatest service is healthcare. Um, Healthcare Mm. is, um, not only is it large, but there's no transparency. Right. Um, Nobody really understands um, the dynamic between the the Bucas, you know, Blue Cross, United, Aetna, Cigna. Their relationships with hospitals and their relationships with employer groups and what the true cost of procedures are and technology you know, can create a, a much more transparent um, system. And I'm really hopeful for that. I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but right. I really do believe that uh, employers and individuals need to um, be informed enough so that they can take control of their care. Where right now, they're not empowered to. Yeah. People always talk about <laughs> wellness and kind of taking control, but like, no one knows that an MRI here is $500 and then, you know, two miles down the road, right, it's $3,000. I mean, there's no rationale for that. It's the same machine doing the same thing. But literally, there is, and if your doctor that you got, that you, that might do your surgery tells you to go to the place that right. you're going to go spend, yeah. but you're not going to spend because the insurance is going to cover it, but it's going to come around. Yeah. you're going to end up paying for it, yeah. or your employer is going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and, and you're so, going there because it's in-network, right? So <laughs> Yes, because it's in-network. And so um, the average person, you know, I'm, I don't claim to be a master of this industry by any means. Right. But it's so complicated that as long, it's as simple as this, as long as I'm not paying it and I can stomach what I'm paying, right, then and insurance is covering the rest, then who cares and I just don't think that it's sustainable. I mean, when you think about it, there has been a six to twelve percent increase year over year in healthcare for corporations and individuals. What business? And it's the second biggest, second largest line item for a business. Who would accept that? And in, in any other capacity, one of your top five cost drivers going up ten percent a year. Right. And we just take it year after year after year yeah. something's got to be done there it's a complicated problem to solve but um, if anyone has any ideas yeah. come let us know come, come see <laughs> Drew Weatherford at Weatherford Partners uh, but yeah I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you I mean I, I think you know all of us you know we have a deductible to meet right until I meet that deductible for me I'm, I'm paying it regardless right yeah. so whether it's $500 or $3,000 I'm, I'm going and I'm going to pay it you know because especially 
for families that have children. A lot of us as parents, we're just like, hey, our child's sick. We need to get a remedy quickly. You know, whether it's the walk-in clinic or your primary care, yeah. you know, you're going to go and you're going to pay it, right? And then it's, uh, so yeah, I, th- I think that's great. And, and that kind of sets that vision for, for healthcare. So I, I, I like that response. So I'm going to swing it back over to you, Sam, and ask you the same question. Um, you know, what do you foresee as areas of potential growth or need? Yeah. Well, I'd say, yeah, from what I think the next big thing is uh, that we're already experiencing is really just a product of of the hundreds and thousands uh, and and tens of thousands of technologies that have been created. And so I think the culture that we have, this Mm. startup culture, this entrepreneur culture that we have, I think it really kind of uh, feeds off of itself and snowballs and, and kind of grows at an exponential rate. And so when you have success stories like Uber and Airbnb and and you know you could name a hundred of these of these uh, companies and, and whatever so many of these unicorns, it's really encouraging people to take bigger swings than they ever dreamed. Yeah. Um, hundreds of years ago, it would have been impossible to start from nothing and create a one hundred billion dollar company within you know within a thousand years, right? Because it was brick and mortar. Now because of technology and so. That whole system and having unicorns in front, I think it challenges people to think uh, outside of the box. It challenges people to pursue unorthodox paths and to say, you know, who am I? What has God endowed me with? How do I see the world? What's happening in the world? How can I go out and be an agent of change? How can I go out and leverage my skills and experience and knowledge and relationships and actually do something that matters, that impacts the world um, and, and, and dream big? And so I think there's thousands upon thousands of entrepreneurs that are thinking that way uh, bigger and, and with a more likelihood chance of success now than they have in, in most generations past. So I think the next big thing is going to see the fruit produced from these thousands of entrepreneurs in this entrepreneurial culture that's going to build off of itself. And, and I think you know the next 50 years are going to be incredibly exciting. I think mm-hmm. technologically innovation is, is really just, I know so there's some argument that's, that's stalling out, but I think uh, over the long run, I think it's actually just going to be accelerating for quite some time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, gentlemen, I, I want to just thank you again for your time. I think this was you know a great start to a new beginning, not only for, for myself, but for those listening to the show, it, just again, just getting started, you know, just you know go out and, and invest in relationships, invest in people, invest in yourself and really get started um, and see where it takes you. So, uh, Drew, Sam, I really do appreciate your time today. Um, thank you so much. Um, and for those of you that are, are listening in uh, to this podcast, make sure that you go out and you check out thebigswings.com. Also subscribe to our LinkedIn and our Facebook page. Um, and until the next episode, thank you for listening in and we'll talk to you soon.